you are worthy of it all, Lord. You're worthy of it all, Jesus. We praise you. In this moment, God, we just take some time to sit at your feet. We make no effort to be eloquent or to put on a show, but we just simply want to recognize who you are and experience the awesomeness of your presence. Praise you, Father. Praise the Son. Praise you, Holy Spirit. You know, I think sometimes uh, our heart is resistant to sing a simple chorus like Holy, Holy, because deep down inside we've lost the wonder of who He is and the awe and just the sheer glory of who He is. And oftentimes it happens because we actually get caught up in what we're doing for the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And we get caught up in the work of the ministry and the serving and the, and the grind of life. And we're, we become Martha in the kitchen and Jesus says, look, if you keep on going this way, you stand to lose what matters most. So be like Mary and come sit at my feet and just be with me. Because everywhere through scripture where we see someone given a, a very vivid vision of, of God and his presence, they respond in two ways. Woe is me and holy, holy, holy. Because when we truly encounter his presence, it puts everything in perspective. And everything must flow out of that for us as a church, for you as a believer, Everything must flow out of the foundational uh, relationship, personal relationship with Jesus Christ to where you know him in such a way that holy, holy, holy does not become cliche, but it becomes all you can say because you're overwhelmed about how beautiful and how glorious he is. You're overwhelmed by his goodness. And you're humbled that he loves you, recognizing all of your flaws. And I believe that's what God wants to do today in many of our hearts, is to just to restore that wonder, to restore that love, that passion, and that fire. And could you just, with a show of hands quickly, just acknowledge, if that's you, and you say, you've lost some fire and some passion and you want to reclaim it today. If that's you, would you just lift your hand across this room? Amen. I believe God wants to do that for you today. So Father, as we transition into a time of a teaching of your word, God, I pray that you would prepare every heart and that every ear would be open to hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. And God, that you would just reignite in us a lost love so that we could be a church that burns for you. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Thank you so much, worship team, for leading us into God's presence this morning. Can we give them a, a hand clap just to thank them? So good, so good. 
All right. Well, welcome back to church. It's so awesome to see you guys. I'm so excited to share with you part two of our new series entitled Circle the Wagons. In 1965, there was a hit song called You've Lost That Love and Feeling by the Righteous Brothers. And it reached the top of the charts in 1965. And like most hits, it rose to the top of the charts, not just because it had a catchy tune or a great beat, but because it had lyrics that were very relatable. It talked about the feeling of love that was lost in a relationship. And it goes like this. You never close your eyes anymore when I kiss your lips. There's no tenderness like before in your fingertips. You're trying hard to show it, but baby, I know it. You've lost that love and feeling. And you know, we hear this song and I think it makes us chuckle. And I think a big part of that is because Top Gun made it really funny. But when you really listen to the lyrics, it's something very relatable that I think at one point in most of our lives has really affected us. The feeling of having a love and a passion for someone that wasn't reciprocated. And with the emptiness that comes with that. It goes on to say in another verse, now there's no welcome look in your eye when I reach for you. And now you started criticizing little things I do. It just makes me feel like crying because baby, something beautiful is dying. We've all known what it's been like to be on that end. But today I want to share with you that God finds himself on that end of our relationship with him and it breaks his heart. See, the writer of the song is longing for something that he used to share with this woman. Something that went far more beyond uh, going through the motions and the actions of a relationship. He wanted more than her works. He wanted her heart. Now, this song remained at the top of the charts for only two weeks, which is not unheard of. And, and, and actually, you could say that's a long time for a hit song. Well, why does that happen? Because the song becomes familiar. And there's always, there's hundreds and thousands of other love songs and hit songs being written on a weekly basis. And so eventually, the heart longs for something new, which is often the way we see our relationships reflected in popular culture today, is that when the love seems to grow cold, we just begin to seek it elsewhere. Christianity can develop this same old song mentality in our walk with Jesus. And as we're working for him, and as we're faithful to him, and as we endure for him, even in the midst of that, we, that we can become jaded by those experiences, by those failures, and suddenly our heart grows cold, and we've lost that love and feeling, so to speak. It's like when a man and a woman, they fall in love, they're overwhelmed with the beauty of that relationship, and everything is new. And everything they do for each other for a time, it's, it comes out of a place of ease and overflow. Because they're in love, it's new. But there comes a point where it becomes familiar. When you wake up to the same face every morning and you go through the same routine, and sometimes life feels like Groundhog Day, and that love can begin to grow cold. 
if something isn't done about it. In the same way, a new Christian, man, do you guys remember when you first trusted Jesus? Do you remember what he's brought you from? Do you remember when you first surrendered your life fully to him? And how a lot of the things you did just came from a place of ease. There was an excitement. There was an enthusiasm. Maybe you still share that, and maybe you don't. But what can happen is this Christian and their newfound forgiveness, they can lose sight of what's been done for them. They can forget the seriousness of their sin. They can allow things to creep back in again, and, or they can get preoccupied with works. And they can begin to lose the thrill of their forgiveness. And if we don't do something about it, we'll eventually start looking for that love and feeling somewhere else. So we're going to discuss this at our tables today before we continue on and open up God's word. The question is this, have you lost some of the love you used to have for God and others? Has it grown cold a little? Maybe in the form of lost enthusiasm or lost energy or maybe a lack of expectation. And if so, what can be done to reclaim that lost love? So let's take some time to discuss at our tables and then we'll get into God's word. Amen. What a question, huh? I, just, I, I hope you guys uh, don't start to resent me because um, I, I never take it easy on you, you know? I'm not like, hey, what's your favorite flavor of ice cream? It's always like, how have you fallen away from God? You know, it goes deep right away. If you were here last week, um, you heard me talk about this, but I just want to remind you, and for those of you that are just uh, digging in on this series right now, this series is entitled Circle the Wagons, and it was a phrase that came to me um, in the middle of the night. I was literally in a dream, and I was having a conversation with the elders and the leaders of the church and and some of you, and just trying to convince you and and just get you to wake up, and, and I felt like in my spirit in the dream that we were sleepwalking into 2023 and that God wanted to do something amazing in our church but we needed to wake up and and so I actually heard this phrase it's time to circle the wagons and I woke up with that phrase and began to write it down and I realized it was God uh, speaking to me in a very personal way because I reflected back on my childhood uh, sitting on the couch with my dad watching old westerns the cowboys and Indians right And um, a familiar scene was uh, a line of uh, horses and stagecoaches traveling to discover and, um, and settle and different areas of the world. And then they would go through a canyon and there would be an enemy lurking in the cliffs. And they would be completely oblivious to it. Until finally an arrow comes out of nowhere and strikes somebody and everyone burst into chaos. And for a moment, they don't know what to do until finally somebody calls out, circle the wagons. So they come together and they organize it and they turn in toward one another and then they circle the wagons to uh, protect themselves and they uh, protect their most prized possessions and their, and their women and children and they put them in the middle and they begin to hide behind the wagons and ready themselves for battle. 
And so us as a church, we need to be reminded as we go into 2023 that God is going to cause us to go into the dark areas of our community, that he's going to cause us to cross our enemy's territory, and we can't be sleepwalking through what he has us to do. If, he, if you, we want to see him do in us what he wants to do in us, then we have to wake up. And that's what we talked about last week. The next generation hangs in the balance. And so we must be awake. But there's something else that threatens the church today. And it's that as we work hard for God, as we do the ministry, and as we endure, and as we stand up for truth in a society that is so anti-Christian, that we can become jaded by the culture around us, by the repeated uh, disappointments and unmet expectations. And those of you that are faithful laborers for God, I just believe this is gonna strike a chord in your heart this morning that you're in a season of your life that you feel like you give, you give, you give, and nothing seems to be changing. And you wonder, is what I'm doing even making a difference? And we can develop a hard heart and we can lose, as Jesus says to the church in Ephesus, our first love. We can forget, we can get so busy in what we're doing, we forget why we're doing it. I want to invite you this morning to remember your first love. And I want to ask you to stand with me as we prepare uh, to read God's word. And if you grab your Bible uh, or your phone if you're using that. And we're uh, here at the fountain, if you're new here, we like to make this faith statement before we open up God's word, because just like David would speak to his soul, why so downcast, oh my soul, sometimes we need to wake ourselves up and prepare our hearts to receive these words and understand there's so much more than ink on a page, but they are the inspired written words of God, amen? So if you would read this statement along with me, ready? This is my Bible, it is God's word. If I read it and live it, I will become everything it says that I am. Now, if you would remain standing with me, turn to the book of Revelation chapter 2, and we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 7. You can follow on the screens if you don't have a Bible with you today. Here it goes. It says, write this letter to the angel of the church in Ephesus. This is the message from the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven gold lampstands. I know all the things you do. I have seen your hard work and your patient endurance. You don't tolerate evil people. You have examined the claims of those who say they are apostles but are not. You have discovered that they are liars. You have patiently suffered for me without quitting, but I have this complaint against you. You don't love me or each other as you did at first. Look how far you've fallen. Turn back to me and do the works you did at first. If you don't repent, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place among the churches. But this is in your favor. You hate the evil deeds of the Nicolaitans, just as I do. Anyone with ears to hear must listen 
to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. To everyone who is victorious, I will give fruit from the tree of life and the paradise of my God. Father, I pray that you would give us ears to hear what your Spirit is saying to this church today. And God, that we would be able to reclaim our lost love and go back to the first love. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You can be seated. So the book of Revelation is quite a fascinating book. And um, let me be real with you. For years, I have avoided teaching this book. And it came from an insecurity as a youth growing up in church, reading Revelation and feeling completely lost and over my head. And God has uh, been taking me on a journey throughout my lifetime of um, saying, look, this is so important. This is important for you to dive into. And I'm reminded that his promise, draw near to me and I'll draw near to you. And Revelation is written in such a way so that you really have to press in to figure out what it's trying to say. It takes some intentionality. It takes some focus And so throughout the series, we're going to be looking at these seven different letters that were written as a part of the book of Revelation to these seven churches in Asia Minor during that time. Because what they do is they represent so much more than just what those specific churches were going through during that time, but they represent stages that all churches go through and continue to go through today. And so what you'll find as you study the book of Revelation is that it's um, broken up into three parts. The first is just chapter one. These are the things that John saw. It's it's a revelation of Jesus Christ that was given to John. The second is what is happening right now. It's the church age. This is chapters two and three, and this is what the series is based upon. And so right now, we are in this part of Revelation. And so you can actually say we are in chapters two and three the church age. And so what we're studying today has special relevance for you and me. These these are not just letters that were written 2,000 years ago to churches that were struggling. These are letters that uh, have been circulating and continue to circulating among the churches to uh, help us regularly evaluate where we are and check our heart and see if it lines up with what Christ has designed for us to be. And then the third part is the part that everyone seems to want to focus on. What will happen in the future, which is chapters 4 through 22. But you got to understand that this book is so much more than a, if you could crack the code, you'll know when the second coming of Jesus Christ is. That was never its, its, its intention. It was to be a revelation of Jesus Christ to the churches that they would wake up and they would ready themselves for his return. And we can get so sidetracked into focusing on, well, what does this mean? And what does this symbolize? And, and how close is it? When is this going to happen? And who is this? That we fail to take the time to actually listen and hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches and apply it to our lives. So let's not make that mistake today. And it's hard to do in chapters two and three because they're very applicable and they get right to the heart of the matter. And so he opens up by saying, write this letter to the angel of the church in Ephesus. This message is from the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and the one who walks among the seven gold lampstands. I don't have a golden lampstand, but I kept Missy's um, 
candle thingy. I don't even know what you call this, right? But we use this on Christmas Eve, so I brought it out. Now, last week, I didn't realize it. I made a mistake. I said that the seven stars represented the seven churches. My bad. Seven stars represent the messengers, the angels, or the pastors of the churches, okay? And the lampstands are what represent the churches, okay? And so we get that at the end of chapter one. It just explains it. That's, I appreciate that when Revelations actually tells you what John is seeing and what it means. And it does. It breaks it down. And so the lampstands represent you and me. We are the church. And so when Jesus says, the message you're about to hear is coming from the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. He's saying the message you're going to hear is not secondhand. But it comes from the one who comes to your church services. That when you sing about him and you worship him and you learn about him, he's here. And not only that, but he's evaluating everything that we do every Sunday, every Wednesday, every life group, wherever we gather. He's evaluating what's going on, which means Jesus has an opinion about what you and I are doing when we gather. Think about that. And so this is why he felt the need to tell John to write a letter because he had observed and now he wanted to address what he had observed. Fountain of life, Jesus walks among us and he's observing. And there's some things that he's gonna speak directly to your heart through, your whole, through the Holy Spirit that he wants to address. So can you do this for me just symbolically? Can you sit up straight right now in your chair? And as you do that, do that in your spirit as well. Sit up in your spirit because what you're about to hear, if you'll allow it to do what it wants to do, is going to awaken something in you again. This morning we'll be challenged by both what the Ephesian church did right and what they did wrong what they were doing that God commends them for, and what they had forgotten that it was all about. In verse 2, it says, I've seen your hard work and patient endurance. The first thing we learn from this church is that when times get tough, keep pressing on. It's a reminder that God sees all, and as he was saying, he walks through the churches, he observes everything. From the very beginning of this letter, he made a statement that the Ephesian church would have recognized. Have you ever been listening to a sermon um, and just kind of you start zoning out? Like maybe that's happening right now. <laughs> Jonathan! Just kidding. We were talking earlier. I said I was going to mess, mess with him to keep him engaged. Right? But you're zoning out. But then all of a sudden, the pastor says something. And you perk up because you're like, ooh, that's me. Or he starts to share a story, a personal spirit, uh, experience, and it grips at your heart because you're like, oh my gosh, that's exactly where I'm at right now. And so literally a letter would be read to the church in Ephesus. And from the very beginning, they heard, yes, we have worked hard. 
and endured patiently. It's been hard, and we thought that Jesus was oblivious to it, but he, he wasn't. He recognized it, and he's commending us for, wow. It's where I think we get the term, uh, he, that preacher read my mail, right? It's, it's that idea that like somebody got into your journal, and, and they're reading it for everyone to hear. I believe that's what God wants to do for us today. Imagine that. Imagine having someone reading a letter that pegs you perfectly and it accurately describes your current state and it brings it into the light. This would have been very, very effective. And this is what Jesus was doing. Jesus sees your labor and your patience and it pleases him. The word for hard work comes from this Greek word that the root of it means to hit or to strike, to strike a blow that is so hard it seriously weakens or debilitates. Figuratively speaking, it means deep fatigue, extreme weakness. And so Jesus is recognizing that this is what they've gone through. Blow after blow after blow, they have remained faithful, which is very commendable, is it not? It's, it's something we can take away for ourselves because there are times, I'll tell you, church, when serving Jesus can feel like a punch in the gut. I've experienced it my whole life, but there's something different. There's another level when you become the lead pastor of a church. Don't feel sorry for me. That's not why I'm saying this, right? But after punching the gut and punching the gut and disappointment and failure, after seeing people come into your church with just this burning enthusiasm and you're thinking, wow, this person's gonna ignite something and then six months later, they're gone. And after you've seen that revolving door so many times, it can be a punch in the gut. And if you're not careful, you can become jaded. Early in my ministry um, as a youth pastor working with young people, I tell you what, if there's anyone who can punch you in the gut, it's, teach it's teenagers. Woo! Teenagers, they're, they're brutally honest. They don't sometimes think that um, you have feelings um, because you're a pastor and you're a grown-up, and so they could just say stuff and everything will be fine. It, it can be painful, but I remember coming out of Bible college with so much enthusiasm, it was like I was a brand new Christian again, like we were talking about earlier. I'd learned all these new things. And throughout the process, I was, I was a youth ministry major, and I put together this youth ministry handbook based on all my classes. And I remember going into my first interview with this handbook, looking like I had got it all together. And I'm sharing this with the pastor blew him away, got the job, and uh, year after year, I, I, I remember flipping through this book saying, well, that didn't work, that didn't work, that didn't work, just being disappointed again and again. I had worked with this thriving youth ministry in Texas where it's just like, um, if you put on an event, like a volleyball tournament, flag ball, football tournament, kids just showed up because that's what they did, came out to Arizona, and it was like pulling teeth. And you would promote it, make funny videos to, to get them to show up. And then you get there and there's three kids. And you're like, okay, that's not enough. We're going to have to change our plans. Just punch in the gut after punch in the gut. 
But I remember being so enthusiastic. I did everything I can to serve those kids. There was a middle school right behind the church. I began to volunteer by just washing and wiping down the tables after lunch. I said, I'll do anything you guys need. I began to form relationships with those students. Um, I got hired as the football coach out of that. Um, I became the crossing guard, and so I was the goofy old guy with the orange vest, almost getting ran over by people who act like they can't see you, you know, and, and just building all these relationships and there was this one young man in particular that I just latched onto because he was one of those outcasts that no one wanted any part of him. He had, he had some hygiene problems, and, um, but he was very large. And so people were kind of afraid of him, but they made fun of him from a distance, right? And he was just always isolated. And I just began to pour out love upon this kid. And, I, and he did not have a father in his life. And so I became that father figure for him. I took him places. When he needed a ride, I drove him. I took him to church every single Wednesday and Sunday morning. And I poured my life. We even did a serve project at his house. We came to his house because his mom was struggling with, with health, feeling overwhelmed. We cleaned the house from top to bottom. We created a chore chart so that the kids could contribute and help out and just poured my life into this kid. One day, it was a Wednesday night, and I was at church, and he wasn't. We were at youth, and I was in the middle of my sermon, and my phone began to ring, and I look, and his name is on the caller ID. So I'm not going to answer because I'm in the middle of a message, but it was distracting me for the rest of the message because I'm thinking, if he's calling me right now, something must be wrong. So I kind of rushed through to the end of the message. I prayed and I quickly uh, went outside and listened to a voicemail, which was a recording of this kid who I had given so much of my time to and invested so much into cussing me out, saying, F you, F the church, F God. All of this is a bunch of baloney. I don't want anything to do with you anymore. Gave no reason for it. Wasn't aware of anything I had done. And then he hung up. What a punch in the gut. It stung so bad. And in that moment, something happened that I didn't really realize. I picked up some baggage. And life felt a little bit heavier. And I began to question everything that I had done. It felt in that moment as if all that I had invested was a complete waste. And I had must have done something wrong because it fell upon deaf ears. That would not be the last failure or disappointment that I would experience in ministry. And every time that would happen, I think I would pick up another bag of disappointment and collectively it would just begin to drag me down. I would come in on Wednesday nights with just a little bit less expectation that God was going to show up and do something great and do something big. I remember a long season of feeling like I was going through the motions, just trying to get through another service. As much as that hurt, though, it didn't change anything about my God. It didn't it change the fact uh, uh, that he died for me and that he loves me and that he took away my sin. It didn't change anything uh, about what he did for me. He was still the same today, yesterday, and forever. But what had changed was 
I started to lose a little bit of that loving feeling. If you're in here this morning, you're feeling like you've suffered a blow after blow after blow. You're discouraged. God feels far away. Maybe you've uh, started to treat other people a little bit differently because deep down you're like, it's only a matter of time until you're going to leave me too. You're going to fail me too. Or you're going to say something hurtful about me too. I want to challenge you to take a page out of the Church of Ephesus book and keep pressing on and remind you he sees you. He's the one that walks among the lampstands. There's nothing that you suffer in vain. It was uh, probably much, much later, maybe five years later, I'm sitting in my house, my phone rings, his name comes up on the caller ID, and I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. What is this guy up to now? I answer the phone to a very shaken voice. I said, Pastor Joe, my brother was just killed. He was shot. Can you come to my house? Can you pray with me and my family? So you never know. It can feel like blow after blow. It can feel like what you're doing is not making a difference. And the evidence was right in front of me. <laughs> that was a big, fat waste of time. But because of those seeds that I planted, he, when he needed help the most, he knew exactly who to call. But not only did the church of Ephesus face the blow of fatigue, but also the constant lies of the enemy through false teachers. He commends them, number two, for standing for truth. He says, you don't tolerate evil people. You've examined the ones that claim to be apostles and you've discovered that they're not. You've discovered that they're liars. And so they stood for truth they understood that in the culture they lived, they needed to draw a hard line in the sand. But here's what happens, guys. Sometimes in our effort to stand for truth, work hard and endure, we can become callous. We feel like we have to guard our heart because it's going to hurt too much. There's so much that stands against us in this corrupt world that it can be easy to focus so much in what we stand against that we forget what we stand for. Amen. It's like we were talking about just a, just a couple months ago when I was talking about the LGBTQ movement and how we've been called to love them. And yes, if they find their way in our church, that's actually a good thing because they're going to hear the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But what has happened is in our outrage because of what we see happening to our youth, and we're right to be outraged by it. But let's be outraged at Satan, because it's his plan. He's the one pulling the strings. That in all our shouting and our, and our yelling and, our, and, our, and our, uh, our campaigning to legislate this out of our country, what do the people hear that have made the decision? to go as far to permanently change their body to match this identity that is false that was not given to them by their creator. 
When do they get to hear the good news of Jesus Christ? Where do they hear that they are loved? Where, they are, where, are, where do they hear that it's not too late for them? That, oh, you did that. Nope, you've gone too far. That's not what my Bible teaches me. But we can look at what we're surrounded with and say, look at how far we've gone. Look at how corrupt society is. And it can harden our heart. Well, the church of Ephesus faced something that I think we've only scratched the surface in facing. The church of Ephesus was famous for worshiping the goddess Artemis, the goddess of fertility. And there was this massive temple that was built for her where pagans would come in and worship. And right there within the temple was a brothel where you could come together with a prostitute and join together with her as an act of worship unto the goddess Artemis. Imagine that. A brothel in the, in, in the worship center right over here. And in, and in this process, it was so evil and so demonic that these young men would, would come under compulsion by these demonic influences and they would actually castrate themselves so that they could join the priesthood and become a priest in this pagan temple. And this was smack dab in the middle of Ephesus. It was, a, it was pilgrims would come and travel to, to come and be and see this place and be a part of it, to pray to Artemis that they might be fruitful, that they might have lots of children, lots of food, lots of money, and be prosperous in life. And they would come and bring their worship. It was just such a sick, twisted version of worship. Living in a culture that is so anti-Christian can start to wear on you. No doubt, the people in Ephesus were difficult to love as, we, as they would have seen what they stood for. And this is what we have to guard our hearts against. See, we live in a culture that is constantly pushing the church to tolerate things. Not just tolerate people, but tolerate things. Tolerate the things that they do. And what happens is we begin to tolerate things in our own life as well. But we are called to be the light of the world. <laughs> See, I think there's a reason why it's a lampstand that represents the churches because Jesus said that you are the light of the world. You're a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. But we cannot shine the light while tolerating darkness. It's an oxymoron. What one generation tolerates, the next generation celebrates. And that's what we're seeing happening today. That in many ways, we have tolerated stuff as a church, but we've also tolerated stuff in our own personal hearts. It's so important that as we love others, we also draw a clear line in the sand and stand against evil. So as individuals, what are you tolerating today? What evil has been normalized in culture today? Because it is happening. There are things that we can point to that like were, were, were so taboo 50 years ago. And now it's like, you know what? It just happens. Everybody does it. They're going to do it. So we're going to stop preaching against it. What is it for you? 
What, what music, what songs have you allowed in your life? What lyrics have you begun to listen to and begun to tolerate because you like the music or you like the beat? What TV shows are now normalized that are rated mature, that you have access to on your phone that shows full frontal nudity, but you like the plot and you like the action and so it's okay for you to watch it. And you don't think that's going to have a negative effect on you? You don't think that can make your love for Christ grow cold? If you don't, then you're more lost than you realize. What sexual sin against our own bodies have we begun to tolerate? Because if we don't, that person's going to leave us. And so, so now we've normalized, even within the church, it's okay to move in with the person that we are not married to. Yeah, that's old-fashioned to save yourself for marriage. When's the last time you heard a sermon about wait? Wait for the one that God has for you. Let your first time be on your wedding night because that's his design. God didn't change his design because everybody's doing it. Alcohol. It's just a part of our culture, right? So we get a little wasted on Friday nights. We don't get too out of hand. You don't think the enemy wants to use that in your life? Come on. Wake up, church. He wants you drunk so that you're not using proper judgment. He wants you doing things in that moment that will trip you up. We cannot normalize these things. And so the church in Ephesus was good at standing up against these things. When these teachings would come in, they would say, we're not going to be a part of that, and you need to stop teaching that here. That's not God's will. But in all of their hard work and their endurance and their uncompromised commitment, they lost something vital, their first love. Number three, we must remember from them that we do it all in love. That all of our hard work, even when it feels like a blow to the stomach, it must flow out of our love for God and others. That when we choose to endure and not give up, it's, it's more than just an obligation. It's out of a love and appreciation and a gratitude for the one who died for us. He says, I have this complaint against you. You don't love me or each other as you did at first. See, you can be the hardest worker and have the hardest heart. Let me say that again. You can be the hardest worker and have the hardest heart. And no amount of squeaky clean holiness can overcome a deficiency of love. Sometimes the reason we work so hard is to compensate for something. It's to compensate for a lack of love in our heart. And so we work ourselves to the bone to prove to ourselves that we're okay, that we're right with God. When in reality, God says, look, you're forgetting what it's all about. I just want you to love me. I want you to know me. And out of that will flow all kinds of beautiful works. 1 Corinthians 13 reminds us that if we 
do all these great works and acts, but we don't have love, then we're nothing more than a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. In other words, what Jesus is saying here is if you can't do it in love, don't bother doing it at all. Because it will not do what it was intended to accomplish. And he says to them, look how far you've fallen. We talked about this briefly last week, but looking back and remembering what was lost is effective because it produces two motivating emotions. Number one, it, produces, it can produce remorse, regret, what can motivate us towards change, but it also could produce a very positive emotion, longing, a longing for what used to be, a desire to go back to what we had before. It's like the saying goes, you don't know what you got, what you got until it's gone, right? You never know what you got till it's gone. It's, it's, it's like the, the husband that doesn't appreciate his wife until they're separated. Months goes by and he comes crawling back. I can't believe I did that. I didn't realize what I had lost. So he says, turn back to me. Do the works you did at first. See, some of us Pentecostals, we are so hyper-focused on experience, and I am too, because I do believe that just one encounter with God's presence, with the love of God, can change everything. But what happens is we become passive Pentecostals, and when we start to fall asleep and drift or we start to lose our first love, we just think God has to come and slap us over the head and zap the life back into us again. And so we're just waiting for the right uh, traveling evangelist or camp speaker or uh, men's, you know, men's camp, ladies' camp, ladies' retreat, whatever. We need, we're just waiting for this big altar moment for God just to come and smack us and wake us up and restore that love that we once had. But Jesus gives us a very different remedy for this problem of lost love. He says, do the works you did at first. Do what you did when your heart was actually in it. Because what happens is as we start to become hardened, we change the things we do and we change the way we do the things that we do. And so Jesus says, if you want to rekindle that, you want to reignite that, then you have to do the things that you used to do that used to come effortlessly. It's proper um, advice for a struggling marriage, right, that has become stale. When they were first married, it was easy to write love letters every day and put it in their lunch as they went to work, right? Or do one of those messages in the mirror that you don't see until it fogs up from their shower in the morning, right? Or to put a chocolate on their pillow or whatever. What, you don't do those things? <laughs> I got somebody back there giving me a scowl, like, that's cheesy, Whatever it may be, you know, you put away the laundry without being asked. Well, guess what? What happens is we don't feel like doing those things anymore and our spouse becomes familiar to us. And so naturally we want to stop doing those things. But what's the answer? If there's love lost, how do we rekindle that? Well, we do those things even though we don't feel like doing it. And as a result, we see that over time, it's really appreciated. And the love that's poured out on you and, and what you see come out of her um, ignites something that had gone to sleep within you again. And this is what Jesus is saying. 
Would you take a moment to see how far you've fallen? Would you think about the things that you used to do? And would you just start to do those things again? Because if you will, you'll recapture your first love. We've got to repent. And he says, if we don't repent, I will remove your lampstand from its place among the churches. Now, why would he say such a thing? You threatening us, Jesus? What's going on? See, the threat is that there'll no longer be an effective church. Because what gives our, our life light is the love we have for Christ and for each other. And if that goes out, so does the light. Do you know how many wonderful charitable organizations are out there really making a difference in the world right now? Have nothing to do with Jesus? Do they do good? Absolutely. Do they make a difference in people's lives? Yes, praise God for them. But do they draw people to Jesus? Only the church is uniquely empowered and positioned to do such a thing. But if we don't have a genuine love for Jesus and others in our heart, we're just another charitable organization. We've been called for so much more. We've been called to burn for him, the church. They'd be left to the darkness as their lampstand is, is, is removed and they could continue to go through the motions, still do their outreaches, their homeless feedings, whatever it may be. But there wasn't going to be any real fruit because they'd forgotten their first love. See, if you don't have a candle, you don't need a lampstand. That's probably going to break something. Listen to this, church. You are either... Shining light or taking up space. I'd like to invite the worship team to come as we close. It says in verse 7, anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. And then he says to everyone who is victorious, I will give fruit from the tree of life in the paradise of God. Something that made, another thing that made this temple we were talking about of Artemis in Ephesus such a destination was in the courtyard, there was this giant tree, and it was the fertility tree. And pilgrims would travel from all over the country, and they would come and they would touch that tree, praying for a prosperous life. Young married women would come and touch that tree because they've struggled to get pregnant and they'd pray that they would be able to conceive. And the church of Ephesus would have walked by this monstrous symbol of a false god on a daily basis, seeing just the life and the celebration and what's looked like joy on the outside of people gather around and touch this tree. And how tempting it may have been at times for those Ephesian Christians to see the, this world seeming to thrive around them while they've suffered the disappointments and the frustrations. How tempting it must have been for some of them to say, well, 
maybe just one time I'll just touch the tree and see if it makes a difference in my life. But to their credit, they held firm. But Jesus, they held firm because they held to this promise. He says, to everyone who is victorious, I will give fruit from the tree of life. In the paradise of God. In those days, kings would have this great garden in their courtyard, and they would use it to entertain high-esteemed guests. And they would come out to the garden and be, be in the courtyard and be entertained there. It was a special place that was reserved for people, invitation only. And what Jesus is promising is that if you'll hold true to me, you will not need to envy what these people have because when the day of my returning comes, I'm going to give you something that will last. And you're gonna experience it with me right here in my front yard. What Jesus promises is something so much bigger than anything this world can offer. As it says, no eye has seen, no ear heard, and no mind has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. I want to invite you to stand with me this morning. Can we just take a moment to bow our heads and to pray? Father, at some point in our life, we got distracted. At some point in our life, we picked up more baggage and frustration. And many of us right now are recognizing that a lot of what we're doing for you, we're doing out of duty and out of frustration. And we're not even doing it well. Uh, we're not doing it with kindness and gentleness. We're doing it and we're gruff and we're short with people. And There's just a dryness inside some of us because we've forgotten our first love. And Father, we want to take a moment this morning to recapture that and to learn from Mary and Martha. As Martha was so overwhelmed by everything that needed to be done, and it did need to be done. It was important. But she lost sight of what mattered most as Mary sat at your feet with not another worry or care in the world. She soaked up every word that you spoke and every minute that passed in your presence. And you praised her for that. So Father, we wanna take a moment today to remember our first love so that with every kiss, there's closed eyes. With every touch, there's, there's power. There's something felt, there's something significant taking place, Lord, because our love for you is what gives power through the Holy Spirit to save lives and change the world. So Father, we use this moment to repent of the things we've put first. That word first, by the way, in the Greek speaks of first importance. God, we forgot what matters most. And we take a moment today to recommit to you, God, 
and just to be in your presence. Let everything we do flow out of the love we have for you. Let us burn for you, God, so that this generation and the generation to follow would be consumed by your love. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. Here, here is how I'd like to end the service today. The team's going to lead us in a song. And would you just, as a response to what God is saying to you today, would you come to the front or maybe come to the side and just take a moment to be alone with him and recapture that first love this morning. I believe that he's got something he wants to speak directly to your heart in this private moment as the team leads us. So would you come out of your seats right now and find a place to just be with Jesus? Make that place an altar.
I pray that you would just ignite our hearts, Lord God. That this would be a church that is known for its love for God and its love for people. God, that we would just be consumed by your love. Lord God, remind us of what you brought us from, what you saved us from, what you've saved us to, and what lies ahead and the promises that you have for us, Lord God. And I pray that we would be fueled by that love. God, that like the name of our church, we would be a fountain of life, Lord. God, a fountain of, of gratitude. God, that we would operate out of an overflow, Lord Jesus. Restore that first love to us by us doing the things that we did at first. Father, I know that you are reminding people right now of the things they used to do that they need to begin to do again. And I pray that they be obedient to that and act upon that. Lord, I thank you for this church. I thank you that you have placed us here at 1119 East Turn Road for a purpose, to be a city on a hill. God, to shine a light on this community. And Father, I pray you continue to take us to where we need to go so that we can be all you've called us to be, Lord. So Father, let us leave this place, Lord, with a reignited passion for you because this world is dark and it's so desperately needs the light that we carry we thank you we give you praise in jesus name and the church said amen just one quick reminder um if you are new here and you'd like to join me for fountain connect it's going to be taking place right across the other side of the lobby here um, at our community spot i'd love to meet you there god bless you guys have a great week